Well, it's really special uh, for us to be back here today. Just as I was walking this morning, someone went, oh, Andy, we still pray for you, you know, which is very encouraging to hear. Um, people still pray for us. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your many encouragements. And it's good to be back with family. Um, we, you're our church family still, part of the Universal Church, and it's wonderful to be here with you. Um, Tom's asked me to preach on Luke 15, 1-7, so that's page 1048, if you want to keep that open, and um, there's a little outline that'll give you a steer of where we're going to go in the next few moments. But I need God's help, we need God's help, why don't we pray? For your endless mercy follows me, your goodness will lead me home. Father God, we're here this morning and I'm sure we're all feeling slightly different places. Some of us feeling very much lost in sin. Would your goodness lead us home? Some of us, Lord, perhaps feeling more puffed up, more confident of ourselves. Lord, would your goodness lead us home? Lord God, above all, show us the Lord Jesus Christ. Point us to him. Show us our king, the king we need. Amen. This week I've been reading up about a social theory called meritocracy. Meritocracy is the idea that power and wealth and money and jobs and university places, they should uh, be distributed, not according to random elements like your, the family you're born into or the postcode you happen to live in, but distributed according to who exhibits the most talent who puts in the most effort. You hear meritocracy being pushed uh, by leaders from across the political spectrum. It's been heard in speeches from Tony Blair through to Theresa May, um, from Barack Obama through to Donald Trump. Everyone seems to love this idea of meritocracy. But the man who first coined the phrase didn't actually intend it to be used positively. In 1958, Michael Young, a Labour politician, he wrote a novel called The Rise of Meritocracy. And and in his story, set in the year 2033, democracy has been replaced. Not with an aristocracy of birth or a plutocracy of wealth, but with a meritocracy of talent. Riches and rule are earned, not inherited. Now, at first thought, the idea of meritocracy sounds good. It might sound better than some of the other models of uh, social rule which we've seen before. But in Michael Young's vision, in his novel, it's very much not a good thing. In fact, his story ends up being a dystopian story, a bit like George Orwell's 1984. He shows how a meritocratic society very quickly becomes a merciless society. If you can imagine it, those at the bottom are told they are there, not because they're victims of circumstance or prejudice or unfairness. No, they are there because it's exactly where they deserve to be, at the bottom. And you can imagine that those at the top are therefore quite proud of themselves because they can can reassure themselves that they are better than others. And so they have no concern about the imbalance of wealth and power because they deserve to be at the top. They've earned it. 
And so they have no compassion on those below them. Before he died in 2002, Michael Young wrote an article in The Guardian pleading with Tony Blair to stop using this term, meritocracy. He wrote this, If meritocrats believe that their advancement comes through their own merits, they will feel like they deserve everything they have. They can be insufferably smug, even believing that they have morality on their side. Now, I begin with that thought because there is a spiritual equivalent to meritocracy. We see it in our passage today, and we see it around our world today. It's the idea that God's love is given out on the basis of merit. So salvation is for those who show the most moral ability, for those whose lives are most upright, most ordered, most impressive, most together. Now, unsurprisingly, what do you think that sort of teaching would do to a church? Well, it'll either lead people to be utterly crushed by their failings, perpetually feeling guilty, wondering if they've ever done enough, or it'll lead a church to be horrendously proud, full of smug self-righteousness, because they know they're where they deserve to be. Now, if you're here today and you're new to Christian things, I want you to be under no illusion whatsoever Jesus does not operate according to that meritocratic idea. In fact, we're going to see in our passage today that Jesus' love goes out to even those who do not deserve it. He's like a good shepherd who goes out of his way for lost sinners. At great personal cost, he promises to bring lost sinners home to himself. But I expect for most of us here this morning, that isn't new. I expect you've been hearing this same message week in, week out for years. We're saved by grace alone. We know this. We know this. Or do we know it? Because often our emotions and our actions betray the fact that often we still think in terms of merit. We're going to see as Jesus goes out of his way to save lost, undeserving sinners, there are two responses. We will either complain about the cost or we'll join in the joy. We'll either complain about the cost or we'll join in the joy. Firstly, verse 1, notice with me how the religious leaders complain about the cost. If you want to follow with me on page 1048, chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Now you need to get this. In first century Palestine, tax collectors really were considered to be the bottom rung of society. They, they took money off their own people which is often way too much than they should have taken, and then they gave it to their enemies, their worst enemies, their Roman overlords. So imagine it's World War II, and uh, you're a Jewish person, and you discover that your Jewish neighbour is taking money off your people and giving it to the Nazis. How would you feel about that guy? 
Well, not great. You get some idea that these guys, the tax collectors, were considered to be scum. They were traitors to their own people. And these guys were such bad company that, that their sinful life was thought to be sort of like infectious. So, so just being around them, you're, you're made to be unclean. And yet, here they are. Tax collectors and a bunch of other sinners, prostitutes probably. Here they are gathered around Jesus. Desperate to hear what he's got to say. The last words of chapter 14. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And here they are, sinners and tax collectors, longing to hear. But you can probably imagine the concern of the religious leaders. Maybe they've been invited to this dinner party, I don't know. Uh, Jesus has is, is been claiming throughout previous chapters to be the, the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes. He's the long-promised Messiah. He's the, the, the one who's going to represent God's blazing holiness to his people. And who is he hanging out with? Traitors, scum, prostitutes, thieves, tax collectors. To coin a phrase, he's hanging out with a basket of deplorables. Eating with them, no less. Eating in that culture meant accepting them. Loving them like family. How could he do this? No wonder the religious leaders are muttering and, and complaining amongst themselves. That because they're operating according to a sort of a, a spiritual meritocracy. They look at these sinners at the bottom of society and they think, well, that's where you deserve to be. You made bad moral choices and now you should reap those repercussions. Whereas we, well, we're the good guys, right? And, and Jesus should be eating with us. We're the religious guys. We made the right moral decisions and so we should be reaping the rewards, surely. Jesus has this the wrong way round. Now, in verse 3, Jesus picks up that all this muttering and complaining going, is going on. So he tells them a story. He tells them a parable. And it's important to note that whilst the sinners and tax collectors are listening in to Jesus, his primary target are the religious leaders. He's not speaking to the sinners here. He's speaking to the religious people. Let's pick it up, verse 4. He addresses them. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he has found it? Now, it doesn't take much imagination to realize that it's a bad thing to be a lost sheep. Now, sheep, if you think about it, they don't really have much going for them in terms of survival mechanisms, do they? Um, they have no speed. They have no camouflage, they, they have no weapons, they have no defense, they have no scary noises. I think the bleat is possibly the most pathetic noise in all of the animal kingdom. And, and for, so for, for predators in the animal kingdom, sheep are basically the, the equivalent of a ready meal. They're just really easy to kill and they're, they're very fattening and it's, it's brilliant. But worst of all, sheep are incredibly dumb. Incredibly stupid. And back in 2005, there was a story going around the newspapers of um, some Turkish shepherds who, were, who went off to get some, shepherd, uh, went off to get some, um, some breakfast. And they left their herd of some 2,000 sheep at the, at the top of this ravine. And for some reason, one of the sheep just decides to launch himself off the cliff, plummets to his death. 
The shepherds were there cooking some breakfast and they realized that literally the entire herd of sheep followed that sheep off the cliff edge, plummeting down this cliff to their death. At the end of it, 450 dead animals lay on top of one another in this billowy white pile. Sheep are stupid and they're sitting targets. It's a bad thing for sheep to be left to their own devices. They need a shepherd. Now, the one thing which we're not really told in Jesus' story here is is how the sheep got lost in the first place. How did this one sheep wander off? And we think about this this week. Why doesn't Jesus tell us that rather important detail? And I wonder if it's because his, his hearers would have known the answer. As we've heard throughout this service, this, I, this story of a shepherd going off to find a lost sheep, it's fairly familiar. It's not new to Jesus. He's riffing on a, on a familiar theme in the Bible. And it seems as if there are two big reasons why sheep get lost. Um, sometimes our lostness is self-inflicted. So you were, earlier on, you might have seen on your service sheet that there's words from Isaiah 53, verse 6, which says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And as we did earlier in the confession, just, just thinking about our own lives this past week, that's true of us, isn't it? We stray. We wander off from the, where we know we should be. See, our creator God, if you've never grasped this for yourself, our creator God is so kind to us in making us and giving us everything we have, our families, our lives, our jobs, our hobbies. He gives us everything. He even gives us himself. He wants to know us. And yet, still we think true life is found outside of him. Like sheep, we we think the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And so we leave God and we wander off. We do this in all sorts of ways, don't we? We might be dissatisfied with the status we've got at work or wherever it might be. And so we seek to build up our own status by elevating ourselves, telling white lies about ourselves, exaggerating about ourselves, and then putting others down. We're not satisfied. It might be we're dissatisfied with our spouse. And so we stray off into pornography or have an office affair. We do this in all sorts of ways. We're not satisfied with what we have and so we stray off. We do this in our thoughts, we do this in our hearts, we do this with what we do. It is a bad thing for us to be lost. To be left to our own devices without a shepherd. We're left wide open to the calamitous effects of sin. We're left wide open to Satan who like a a wild predator will just come and eat us alive. And ultimately, if we're not found, if we're left lost, or we'll be lost for eternity. It's a bad thing to be lost, and more often than not, our lostness is self-inflicted. But you know what? Often our lostness is just as much inflicted on us by others. And I think that's the unique thought which Ezekiel 34 offers to us. As Corin read it earlier, you might have realized that God's flock at that time, God's people were led by a bunch of bad leaders, bad shepherds, who were clearly in it for themselves. And so what do they do to the sheep under their care? Well, they abused them. Uh, They slaughtered them. They, They ate them. 
They were supposed to be leading God's people, but instead they, 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 they were slaughtering them. And that, not only that, but in and amongst God's people were a whole bunch of other sheep who were bullying them, pushing them around, making life harder for those who are bruised and hurting and damaged. There's no justice. So you can imagine, perhaps not unreasonably, some of those sheep thought, well, if this is what shepherds are like, this is what sheep are like, I don't want any part of this. I'm going to go it alone. I'm going to wander off. I'm going to scatter, fend for myself in the world. It's a funny thing at Christchurch Ballon. We keep on having people arrive at our church telling us they've had a terrible experience of churches. Um, it might be bad leaders. It, it might be um, just this meritocratic way of thinking amongst church members, looking down their long noses at them. One girl said to me recently, this is my last chance at church. I've nearly given up. She's been going nowhere for about three or four years on her own. She's not doing brilliantly spiritually, as you can imagine. Is that her fault? Well, in part, we might say yes. In part, we might blame those false shepherds, those bullying sheep. See, sometimes people are the way they are spiritually, not just because they made bad decisions, but because others have led them badly. And we need to see that, and we need to appreciate that, because God does. So the stakes are high, aren't they? It's not a good thing to be a lost sheep. And the way Jesus phrases this story in verse 4, maybe you notice as I read it, he kind of assumes the religious leaders he's speaking to appreciate that, that, that um, it's obvious that they should be going after the lost sheep. Just, just look again, verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? See, to Jesus, it's obvious to go and search for the lost sheep. But it's not that obvious, is it? On the face of it, leaving 99 sheep on their own, on the off chance of finding one sheep, well, it sounds like a bit of a gamble, doesn't it? We might think it makes more economic sense to, to, to write off the one in order to just better look after the 99. And after all, there's nothing special about that sheep which has wandered off. If anything, it, it deserves where it is because it wandered off. Let it die. Let's, let's look after the 99, we, we, we might think. But if we're thinking that way, if the religious leaders are thinking that way, well, we're revealed to be full shepherds, believing that lost sheep is expendable. And so it's inevitable that they then complain about the cost of going to find him. Isn't it wonderful Jesus is not like that? Jesus has compassion on the lost. Not too long ago, Hannah and I went to the Natural History Museum. Caleb's really into dinosaurs at the moment. Um, unsurprisingly, he's three years old. Dinosaurs are brilliant. And um, we're in that big hall with, um, you know, that big whale hanging from the ceiling. And we're looking at all the animals and, you know, stuffed animals. And um, we look down. We can't find Caleb anywhere. He's potted off somewhere. Um, we have no idea where he is. We're, we're shouting for him. Panic sets in. He's three years old. It's a big place. He could have, someone could have snatched him. Who knows? The staff there were terrible. They, they didn't want to help. 
But at this point, having lost Caleb, did Hannah and I just go, well, we've got two others. <laughs> you, know, two, you know, two out of three isn't bad, statistically. No, we actually went and looked for him. And we found him about 100 meters away on the top floor, quite happily looking at some taxidermy or something like that. See, so Caleb's value to us isn't contingent on his obedience. His value is innate. We love him despite the fact that he is disobedient. And so it is with us. Our value does not fluctuate to God according to our moral performance week by week. He loves us and he goes looking for us whenever we wander off. So we need to ask ourselves, is this how we feel about the lost? Is this how we feel about the broken sheep? Whether they're in this church or in our community? Or like the religious leaders, are we tempted to complain about the cost? Before the service, I was chatting with Tom about what this might look like. And it's easy, isn't it? Preachers, we always stand up here saying, you know, share your faith with your friends. Be active, inviting people to events. And I know there's a tendency in us just to roll our eyes and go, yeah, but... My friends, they don't really want to be found. They're quite happy being lost. And so we just let them be lost. Or we might think, oh, but, you know, it's, it's embarrassing talking about Jesus. It's really embarrassing. Just, you know, I don't want to lose face. I don't want to lose status at work by banging on about Jesus. And it's not appropriate anyway in the workplace I'm in. No, no, we can't do that. Perhaps when the holiday club comes around, no doubt Gareth is going to start banging that drum sooner if he hasn't done already, saying, look, we need helpers for, to share the good news with these children about Jesus. And, and we might go, oh, not my thing, really. It's easy, isn't it? We know there are lost sheep out there. We know we should be having compassion on them. But still, we complain about the cost. I also wonder if there's a particular danger, particular for, for churches like us, because we, we know we want to be growing churches. We know we want to do that by multiplying ministries. And the way to multiply ministries is to invest in people who have gifts who can then minister to others. We want to multiply ministries. And so what do we do? We invest in people who are particularly gifted and particular talents, and, and so they multiply the ministry in order to reach the lost. That's what our churches sort of do. But there's a danger, isn't there, in that sort of pattern of ministry that we end up valuing those gifted individuals more than perhaps others. And so a wealthy, well-taught, willing-to-serve family end up being more valued than a cash-poor, time-poor, poorly-taught single mum, for example. We might think, oh, well, she can't... You do much to contribute, to multiply the ministry, and so tempting not to put much resources or effort into loving her and helping her and serving her. And so we place our efforts always with the strong sheep, with those who can multiply the ministry. That's a particular danger for churches like us. All too easy to stand and preach grace and yet have ministry patterns which just fall into meritocracy, lacking compassion on the wounded sheep outside, Lacking compassion on the wounded sheep even in here. So I guess that's the challenge. As we see Jesus' love for lost sheep, the challenge is that we don't end up complaining about the cost. Instead, and here's the positive, instead Jesus wants us to join in the joy. 
Let's carry on. Verse 4, look down. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after that lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, not if, when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Consider the cost to the shepherd in this story. He's discovered, having counted his sheep, that one of them's run off. He decides, in his love for this sheep, to leave the 99 and go and find this one. He, he treks across mountains, we can imagine. He goes through bogs. He looks under stones, or at least in the kids' versions of uh, the Bible story, which I have with my children. It, it, you know, it's a real extended search for, um, by the shepherd for the sheep. And eventually, he stumbles across this rather bewildered and exhausted sheep. And this sheep is delighted to see the shepherd, but too exhausted to follow him. So what does the shepherd do? He hoits him up onto his shoulders and carries him home. Now a sheep, if it's an adult sheep, would weigh about nine stone. That's not light. Imagine trekking home, you know, three mountains, across moors, with a, with a nine stone sheep on your back. I'm, I'm exhausted after carrying Chloe, who's like, what, three stone? I don't know how much she weighs. You know, on a long walk. She always gets tired after about 20 minutes, and then we have to carry her around. That's exhausting. Imagining that for a, for a nine stone sheep on your shoulders and having to go all the way home. That's not an easy journey. But this shepherd, instead of swearing under his breath, muttering about the stupidity of this irritating sheep which has run away, he says, verse 5, he joyfully, joyfully puts it on his shoulders. He joyfully carries it home. My economist friends tell me that you can determine the worth or the value of something according to the, the price which you can persuade someone to pay for it. So this table here, I don't know who owns it, probably Tom. If Tom says, um, I want to buy this table, and Alex says, I'll pay £200 for that table, well, this table is now worth £200, even though it's probably worth, what, 20 quid for Ikea? I don't know where you got it from. The value of something is determined according to how much someone's willing to pay for it. Well, what are you worth? What are lost sinners worth? What is their value? Well, what, what was Jesus willing to pay for us? See, Jesus left the paradise of heaven and he entered the wilderness of earth. And finding us utterly lost, broken, messed up and alone, he puts the weight of our sin on himself. We, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus does that for us, and he does so joyfully. And he takes the initiative. He doesn't say to us, oh, brilliant, I found you. Well, let's do a 50-50 share thing. I'll, I'll lift you for a bit, and then you walk for a bit. I'll lift you for a bit, you walk for a bit. Jesus carries us home, whoever we are, whatever we've done. He doesn't try and meet us halfway. He carries us home. And what happens next is simply extraordinary. At the end of verse 6, he, he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me. 
I have found my lost sheep. Now again, think about the economics here. It's all wrong. Just as it was mad to leave the 99 to go and find the one, well, now he throws a party on top of it. I don't know what he has for... for I doubt it's lamb kebabs. That would be inappropriate, wouldn't it? But he throws a party for this lost sheep. He's going over and above board to celebrate the fact he's found this lost sheep. What does this communicate about the value of this lost sheep? What does this communicate about your value before God? The religious leaders, they might have criticised Jesus for risking the 99 for the one. But actually, it's really good for the 99 that Jesus did go for the one. You see, if that one sheep is expendable, if that one sheep can be sacrificed in the name of expediency for the good of the larger group, then each individual in that group, well, what does that say about your value? You're insecure because you don't know if the shepherd would go and run after you if you get lost. Everyone begins questioning their value. Would, would, would the shepherd go after me? But if the shepherd, if the Lord Jesus Christ is willing to pay such a high price for one rebellious sheep, that gives us great security. He's willing to do that for you. He's willing to do that for any of us. And so those commands of the shepherd here to his friends, they're not a suggestion. They're not a polite request. They are a command. He says, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. See, joy belongs to Jesus. Jesus eats with sinners, not begrudgingly, but joyfully. He goes to the cross, not begrudgingly, but joyfully. And having found us, he wants us to share in his joy. And so he closes this parable, verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now at first reading, you might think, oh, Jesus is saying the Pharisees and tax collectors don't need to repent here. I'd encourage you, if you think that, come back in two weeks' time. Because the fact that these religious leaders cannot rejoice with Jesus, the fact that they're complaining about the cost, well, it demonstrates that they themselves are truly lost and under God's judgment. So if you're here today and you've been a Christian for years, here's the encouragement for us. Will you join in the joy? There is no room in any church for a meritocratic, mercilessness view of people, where people have different values according to their ministry outputs. There is no room for expediency and trying to look after 99 and just letting that poor lost sheep just die. There's no room for that in any church. We care for victims. And the reason we care for victims is because we know that we deserve to be there too. We are not better. We're not cleverer. We're not morally more superior than the lost. By nature, we are lost. And we're only here because Jesus carries us home. So having been shown that mercy, will you extend that same mercy to others? But maybe you're here today and you, you still have big questions about your value. 
Well, even you, you can join in the joy. I came across recently a story about an American pastor called Matt Chandler. And um, he, he heard about a youth event going on uh, near, near where he lived. And um, it was, this youth event, was, I think, was on, on the topic of marriage and, and sexuality. And next door to him was a young girl in her 20s, I think. She, she had a particularly tough upbringing. She'd been hurt in many ways. And some of this, I think, really wasn't her fault. Some of it perhaps was. But Matt, he, he took her on to this youth event. And at the beginning of this event, the, the speaker got up the front and he had this pristine white rose, beautiful white rose. And he asked that as you're speaking in this huge crowded auditorium of a thousand teenagers, um, he handed it to the person in the front and just asked them to pass it along. Just keep passing it along. Just keep passing it along. And after speaking for you know, 30, 40 minutes, he asked for the rose to come back. And he held it up before everyone. And that white, pristine rose was no longer beautiful and pristine. It was tattered and tired and starting to wilt and looking a bit sad and pathetic. And the preacher said, if you pass your sexuality around, no one will want you. Who would want a rose like this? Who would want a rose like this? And Matt Chandler sitting next to this poor girl, had to stand up and say, Jesus, Jesus wants that rose. Jesus wants that lost sheep. Jesus seeks and saves the lost. You have value. You have beauty. Not because of the decisions you've made, but because Christ was willing to pay for you. So if you're here today, wondering about your cost, wondering about your value, thinking you've made all the wrong decisions, looking at us and thinking, they've got it all together, they're so much more brilliant than me, think again. Think again. Join in this joy. Because in Christ you can be found. And today would be a good day to say to the shepherd, lift me up, take me home. Let me pray. I will trust in you alone, for your endless mercy follows me. Your goodness will lead me home. Father, we praise you that we have a good shepherd who seeks and saves the lost. Thank you that he carries us home. Amen.